Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Anthropology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Sneha Anavarapu, the host of this channel. Today, I'm in conversation with Dr. Lisa Bjorkman, whose book, Waiting Town, Life in Transit and Mumbai's Other World-Class Histories, was published in 2020 by the Association for Asian Studies in a wonderful new series called Asia Shorts. And if I might Add rather self indulgently, uh, Lisa is one of my favorite ethnographers of contemporary urban India. So it's such an absolute pleasure and honor to have you on the show today, Lisa. Hi, Sneha. Thank you so much for inviting me. This is a, a great, great pleasure to have this opportunity to talk about this book with you. Yeah, I'm really excited. But before we get into the book itself, um, I was hoping that we could start off with you telling us a little bit about yourself, perhaps how you became an anthropologist. Sure, sure. Um, So actually, sometimes uh, people who read my work are surprised to know that my PhD is actually not in anthropology, but um, rather I have a PhD in politics. Uh, So I became an anthropologist because what I found um, over the course of my doing my doctoral work was that the analytical tools and um, methodological techniques of anthropology, so in my case, um, interpretive ethnography, Uh, Those were the ones that were best suited for exploring the kinds of questions and puzzles that I wanted to look at in my doctoral work. So this this became clear when I began thinking actually through sort of methods uh, for my doctoral project, which was about water infrastructure in Bombay, and that became uh, my first book, Pipe Politics. So I think one way to begin to answer your question, Seha, might be just to talk about how I arrived at that uh, methodological strategy. So why was it that I decided to do an interpretive ethnography to answer um, a research question that I was framing in a department of politics? Uh, and that, and um, if I can talk about that, that will also actually allow me to maybe introduce the origins of this book, Waiting Town, which uh, grew out of some new puzzles that emerged from um, from that earlier project about infrastructure. Um, okay, so backing up the the research for that book, Pipe Politics, uh, so there was there was kind of like a two part puzzle that I wanted to explore. So the first part of that puzzle um, was that dazzling decades of urban development and economic growth uh, that took place around the turn of the millennium in Mumbai had presided over the deterioration of the city's water infrastructures. And so this was puzzling to me because Mumbai had no shortage of resources that it could use in redressing any infrastructural shortfall. So um, you know, it didn't have any shortage of financial resources and even water resources. Mumbai's water engineers were very quick to point out to me that there was no aggregate water shortage in Mumbai and that per capita availability of water, um, as well as estimated leakage levels, were on par with cities like London. So this was the first part of the puzzle was how was I going to make sense of Mumbai's unpredictable water taps, given the absence of any resource uh, constraints, either financial or hydraulic? And then the second part of the puzzle, and this gets to my methodological uh, sort of um, decision, the second part of the puzzle was that these conventional categories of analysis and explanation in the social sciences didn't really get me very far in explaining patterns of water access and inaccess in Mumbai. So, for instance, water troubles uh, quite clearly were affecting not only um, the more than uh, estimated 60% of city residents that were reported to live in so-called slums. Um, but elites as well in Mumbai were talking about their taps becoming um, dry and uh, drying up. So things like categories like class and community and rights and rules and formality, informality, these kind of uh, available categories of analysis, they didn't get me very far in accounting for Uh, sort of readily observable hydrologies in the city. So this is why I decided I needed a different 
methodological point of departure, and I decided to do an ethnographic project. Um, and that was because I wanted to organize a study that was going to allow that was going to sort of yeah allow these uh, whatever the analytical categories that were going to be salient. Uh, I wanted those categories to be emergent through the research. Uh, rather than presuming in advance what those frameworks and categories might be. So in practice, this became a kind of um, uh, a technical question uh, or methodological question about how I was going to go about selecting field sites, like actual physical places where I would wake up in the morning and go as an ethnographer and where I might produce knowledge into these sort of broader processes that I wanted to learn about. Um, because, you know, as an ethnographer, like in a huge and complex city like Bombay, like, where do you go? You have to actually wake up and go somewhere. <laughs> so ultimately, what I did was I selected um, through a kind of elaborate, uh, you know, method of selecting. Um, I selected 18 field sites where I would then go on to carry out ethnographic field work. Um, and I've written about that process in a sort of supplementary methods chapter to that book in case anyone is interested. And I've had great fun over the years talking with um, graduate students about site selection, which is mm -hmm. one of my favorite <laughs> things to talk about. I can but, imagine. <laughs> it's really fun. But the book that we're talking about today, Wading Town, um, emerged from research from one of those 18 field sites. Um, and that field site was a neighborhood that in the book I call Pratikshanagar, which loosely translates as Waiting Town. Um, so I guess by way of introducing Waiting Town, I'll just say uh, a word about how I landed up there in the first place and what it was that kept pulling me back to Waiting Town over the following decade. And I should say that, um, you know, Waiting Town uh, was one of those 18 sites and I did a bunch of research there, but the research that I did there didn't end up being part of the story that I told in my first book, Pipe Politics. Uh, and I, I'll, talk, I'll talk about that, I'm sure, as our conversation goes on, um, sort of how I ended up deciding to write a book about prediction Nugger. But anyway, I first heard about Prediction Nugger uh, in 2008 when I first arrived in uh, Bombay to begin the research from, uh, for pipe politics. Uh, and I heard about it from a man who I call Salim um, in Waiting Town. And Salim had been living in a water-scarce neighborhood nearby, one that I do write about in, uh, in pipe politics called Vajinagar Benganwadi. And Salim had told me that he used to ride his bike over to this neighborhood um, to fill a few plastic jugs every day from this funny pipe that sticks up out of the ground and where he was able to somehow fill his jugs for free. So now in a city where, uh, you know, cash-strapped residents regularly paid significant proportions of meager incomes on water, this idea or this account of free water captured my imagination. So I went to find this funny pipe. Um, and I write about this first visit in the first pages of Waiting Town. Wait, where is it? I write, um, following Salim's directions, I look both ways before darting across the railroad tracks on foot. Then I traverse a vegetable and fish market, past a garbage heap, and follow a dirt path across a small bridge to arrive at the neighborhood, which I will call Prediction Other, or Waiting Town. I walk along a dusty path toward a small group of people jostling about in a wide puddle. The puddle is ringed with pots, plastic and steel. Some of the pots are bobbing about in the puddle like little boats. I presume this must be the source of Salim's free piped water. It's the end of the quote. So, yeah, so the story that I tell in Waiting Town begins with an event that took place just a few weeks after this first visit, um, an encounter that took place at the water pipe in November 2008, um, and I'm sure I'll get into the details of that incident later in our conversation, but for now I'll just say that uh, while what happened that November night was certainly baffling, um, that incident didn't initially strike me as having any broader significance. Um, however, over the, the sort of months and weeks and years even that the stories from Protection Ever unfolded, it became clear that this story wasn't so marginal as it had seemed. And, and very quickly, I found that following these stories led me pretty directly to the heart of some of the world's most powerful institutions. Um, and that the accounts that emerged there would go on to destabilize 
some of the globally empowered ideas and ideals that uh, ideals, sorry, that animates developmentalist thinking and policy paradigms all over the world. So I don't want to get ahead of myself here, um, but that's sort of the, the background of the book, and I'll stop there. No, this is um, really, really helpful to contextualize not just yourself in relation to the book, but the book, uh, but the, the two books in relation to each other. So thank you for that. That was, uh, it also, I, I don't think I knew so much of the background story. So it was very <laughs> engaging for me as well as someone who's read, the, who's read both the books. Um, so thanks for that. Um, you know, this book was so interesting. Uh, not just in terms of the arguments you're making, but the the data that you draw, draw from and the writing style of the book itself. So I have two related um, comment questions, you know, the ones that we academics excel at. Um, <laughs> and I will ask them one by one. Um, so one, at the outset itself, you mentioned how you juxtapose the entries from your field notes diary alongside the more analytical sections. And two, and I totally love this, you argue that in a way, this mode of writing and knowledge production is itself a political act. And you say, and I quote, in the place of representational purification, the narrative form of waiting town invites and impels the reader into an experience of not knowing and into an experience of waiting. Uh, Quotes end. I must say that as a somewhat impatient reader myself, I was reading the book so self-reflexively and with so much awareness of the way my mind <laughs> desires this representational purification, you know. Um, and many a time I had to remind myself this is precisely the point of the book, to make one pay attention and really listen to the to the details and to the stories in the field notes. Um, at the same time, it's, it's such a testament to the way you write um, that I felt all the thrills that a mystery novel often invokes. Um, but I just wanted to know uh, a little more about what prompted you to write in this experimental and provocative mode, whether this choice of juxtaposing uh, you know, dry analytical discourse, and I'm saying dry in quotes, of course, none of your writing is dry. Um, and uh, ethnographic field notes, was it like a conscious choice? Or is it something that just like, came to you? Was it editorial decisions? Mm. I have so many questions. But yeah, I just wanted to know more about the style of writing. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for, uh, for, well, for reading and also for inviting me to say a bit more about, about the form of the book, which, um, yes, it's a little bit un- unconventional. Um, and as you mentioned, yeah, it's written in, in sort of two narrative voices. So the first voice uh, is comprised of entries from my field notes journals. Um, and those were written between 2008 and 2019. And on the page, those passages are offset in italics. Uh, and they're offset from the authorial voice which uh, with which I assembled the book. which And that assembling of the book happened between 2017 and 2018. 19. Um, so while the narrative forms overlap calendrically speaking, because there are field notes entries from as recently as 2019, whereas I began assembling the book in 2017, um, the, the two genres of writing, I keep them distinct on the page of the book. And the reason I do this uh, is to emphasize how the most recent field notes accounts from 2019 even those only make sense in light of the subsequent rereadings and reinterpretation of notes from a decade earlier. So in this way, um, the form of the book itself is, it kind of works like a mode of reflection on the work of knowledge production. And because the crux of the story itself centers on a huge knowledge production exercise, um, and that's, it's a huge slum survey, uh, which I'm sure we'll get into later in the conversation. So in this way, the form of the book is part of the content of the book because it it's sort of enlisting the reader in the work of interpretation that is central to knowledge production. Um, and again, because the topic of the book or the sort of story is about knowledge production, this becomes a way of inviting the reader to think about the work of knowledge production um, in uh, in sort of both of those those interpretive moments, um, so the book's structure and organizational logic, as you as you point out, is also a bit unconventional um, in the sense that rather than doing that 
kind of normal monograph thing, which I did in my first book as well, where you sort of lay out an argument in the introduction and you frame and theorize the ethnographic material that follows. What I do with this book is I allow the reader to encounter the, mis- the material processually. Um, and this was a sort of designed to be encountered much as I did over the years that I spent probing the puzzles that animated the research. But this isn't to say that the chapters unfold in a calendric sequence, because again, um, a lot of what I wrote up in my field notes would come to make sense only years later and in light of um, subsequent events and happenings uh, that happened in Pratikshanagar and elsewhere, and also through the work of reading and rereading and reinterpreting um, Mm -hmm. those earlier field notes in light of those later events and interpretations. Um, Because as I mentioned earlier, Pratikshanagar, while it was one of the field sites where I had carried out the research for pipe politics, it wasn't part of the story that I told in that book. But um, even after I finished uh, finished writing that book, I kept on visiting Pratikshanagar whenever I was back in Bombay over the next decade. And I was sort of catching up with people and hearing about new happenings and encountering new puzzles. And I was sort of still trying to figure out and follow the puzzles that had uh, captured me and brought me in. And this wasn't, it wasn't because I had any particular idea of what I might do with uh, the the knowledge I was producing or with these inquiries, but it was, I think it was almost just out of habit that I kept on writing out field notes. I would sort of go there and catch up and what's going on. And then I would come home and, uh, and write up field notes because, you know, I had generated at that point such a fat file of prediction agar field notes, you know, my file on my computer of prediction agar field notes um, that I had produced while researching pipe politics was was one of the largest um, field notes uh, collections of all the sites. But the stories in that file were sort of, you know, they didn't end up in that book. Um, the, the idea for this book came a bit later, or a lot later, just in 2017 on the suggestion of a friend. Uh, who'd read a little essay that I had written about the neighborhood for a workshop. But then, so once I decided to actually write the book, of course, and this gets to your question of how I decided on the form. Once I decided I was going to write a book, I had to figure out what what everything in that fat file was about. What what did it all sort of lead up to? What was this a story about? Um, You know, all of the documents and field notes and files and clippings and photos that I had amassed over the years. So what I did in order to try and figure this out was I started reading and rereading and reorganizing. So just as a kind of first step, I thought, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to sort of cut and paste everything from my field notes into some kind of like a coherent account of what happened over the years. So I started pulling out bits and parts of the field notes and what seemed to be key moments or important events or turning points. And I tried to put them chronologically into this big word document. Um, And then as I went about like doing all this cutting and pasting and sort of trying to organize chronologically, I realized that it, you know, doing it that way didn't account for anything like a coherent story because the accounts were shot through with all of these mutually irreconcilable events and accounts of events. And um, so it became clear through this process uh, that the question of what this was a story about sort of kept on changing over the years. It wasn't um, just that new things kept happening, but that the recountings of the events kept on changing and the stakes of everything kept on changing um, as well. So as an author, this presented me with a challenge. So how was I going to go about writing a book about something when that about sort of wouldn't hold still long enough to be written up Mm -hmm. in any tidy, uh, in any sort of tidy way? So that's kind of how I realized that this is what the book was going to be a story about. So while I had sort of thought that I was going to cut and paste it all, and then I was going to write a book about that, right? There was going to be a story and I was going to write a book about the story. What I realized was the actual assembling of the bits and fragments was what the book was about. So to get back to your question about the narrative voices on the page, um, the first being that of my field notes journal and the second, the more uh, authorial voice with which I assembled the book, um, I, I distinguished between them in order to demonstrate some of this sort of intersubjective sense-making. Yeah, well, that makes a lot of sense. And um, that's, uh, again, I can't 
help emphasize how much of an interesting experience it was reading the book. I really enjoyed it, but I was also very self-reflexive in a way that I haven't been before. Um, so thank you for that experience. Um, well, getting to the book and its arguments, uh, one of the things that Waiting Town does is it tracks the aftermath of slum demolitions and evictions in the service of the Mumbai Urban Transport Project, MUTP. Mm-hmm. which has uh, come to be celebrated as a prototype and model in international policy circles. One of the key reasons for this celebration is that MUTP is said to have been a model of inclusive and efficient resettlement done by, in quotes, the community. I really enjoyed your critique of the way this fantasy of the community works and how it masks the subtler forms of violence carried out in its name. And I was hoping that you could tell us a little bit about MUTP The Project its impact in the wider policy discussions in India and how this inclusive model of community participation really works. Mm. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, so, as I mentioned um, earlier, the, the crux of the story that emerges in Waiting Town centers on this huge knowledge production exercise, this huge slum survey which took place in Mumbai around the turn of of the millennium. And that happened in conjunction with a series of neighborhood demolitions that took place along Mumbai's railway lines, suburban railway lines. And those uh, neighborhood demolitions were connected with a state government infrastructural development initiative that you just mentioned uh, called the Mumbai Urban Transport Project, MUTP. And this was a state government project uh, with a portion of its funding coming from the World Bank. So the MUTP had a bunch of different components. There was a road widening component component, and there was a railway track extension component and so on. And ultimately, the the project presided over the removal of somewhere between 100,000 and 300,000 so-called project-affected people uh, who have been living on government-owned lands um, throughout the city and the resettlement of uh, people elsewhere in the city. So the part of the MUTP projects that we encounter in Waiting Town uh, was the part that involved the removal of hundreds of thousands of people living alongside the railway tracks, um, and they were removed in order to increase the speed and efficiency of the Bombay local trains. So the demolitions and the resettlement parts of the MUTP were, uh, somewhat unsurprisingly, um, the by far most contentious parts of the MUTP project. Um, but ultimately, the evictions and uh, the resettlement became, as you mentioned, a sort of internationally celebrated model of so-called community-managed, quote, participatory displacement. Um, so the most sort of contentious part of the project became the most celebrated in global development circles. And the reason for this was that in accordance with World Bank loan conditionalities, the work of surveying the affected neighborhoods, and this was a massive exercise in knowledge production and representation and mapping, um, this work of, of surveying and then of deciding who among those surveyed would be deemed eligible or not for resettlement housing, this work was going to be carried out not by state actors or by elected representatives, but rather uh, this work was tasked to the so-called affected communities themselves. Well, this idea that control over deciding or determining uh, eligibility for compensation was going to be placed in the hands of the so-called project-affected community seems, of course, to promise inclusivity. But instead, what we see in Waiting Town um, is how this developmentalist fantasy of community um, and the institutional and financial uh, empowering of this community idiom ends up playing out in very, very different ways on the ground. So without getting into the weeds and the details, um, the accounts in the book, uh, what they show is how Mumbai's highly dynamic and contentious political and associational landscape um, is actually populated by a myriad of organizations and activists and community networks and regional associations and social workers and political actors. So this lively political associational backdrop demonstrates the, I mean, I would say the preposterousness of the notion that so-called project-affected people might be represented as a single community 
right, whose myriad and conflicting claims, conflicting claims, might be unproblematically arbitrated by an unelected and unaccountable NGO. Um, and I write, um, this is in chapter seven, I think. Yeah, in chapter seven, um, I kind of sum up this, this critique here. I write, uh, the loan conditionalities requiring that resettlement be managed not by democratically elected representatives, but rather by the so-called affected communities themselves amounted to an attempt to bypass the well-institutionalized and deeply political processes and practices and procedures by means of which claims to urban land are actually made. So that's a kind of quick and dirty summary of, um, of that critique. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and going off on that, uh, I also really appreciated your point um, about NGOs intentionally mimicking the governmentalizing gaze. Um, would you be willing to share with our listeners what you mean by this and the implications this has in us thinking about the rather fraught connection between legibility and eligibility of citizens? Hmm. I love this question, Sneha, because how you've just framed it, um, it gets it gets right to the heart uh, of a, a key issue in the book, which is the relationship, as you just put it, between eligibility and legibility. Um, I wonder if those are semantically related. Yeah. <laughs> as I was saying it, I was like, huh. <laughs> eligibility and legibility. So this idea that some people are eligible to receive uh, receive benefits or to avail of resources through, you know, official slash legal slash formal, uh, in quotes, means, and that um, other ineligible people are somehow forced to survive through so-called informal means. Now, this is a trope, of course, that runs through so much scholarship in and of cities of the global South and um, is perhaps especially prevalent in work on Indian cities um, in particular. So it's this idea that people whose lives and livelihoods that are legible to law and policy are able to access resources through a kind of politics of rights, um, whereas people whose lives and livelihoods fall on the wrong side of the law uh, must resort to sort of patronage-inflected appeals. Um, It's this idea, this kind of binary, that gives rise to the notion um, that what's sometimes glossed or or termed subalternism or subaltern urbanism, that this is a kind of style of politics, right? The sort of informal politics or subaltern politics. Um, And this is a kind of political style that often gets mapped in scholarship onto, sort of mapped geographically onto so-called slum-dwelling communities. So, you know, like slums are where informal politics happens, where sort of subaltern styles of politicking happens. Um, But what we see in Waiting Town, and again, without getting into the, the details, is that when the histories are traced of who or what ends up getting treated as eligible or ineligible for in this case, for resettlement housing, eligibility and ineligibility end up becoming sort of um, key master concepts um, in the book. When we look at the actual process by which that divide is produced, what we see is that this language of eligibility and ineligibility is, is arbitrary and anachronistic. Um, because in this case, it implies that there was a policy framework. It implies the existence of a policy framework when we see historically that there had yet uh, to be any such framework in existence. And which is to say, looking at the historical production of these categories like eligible and ineligible, formal and informal, we see that the distinction between them isn't a legal distinction at all, but rather it's it's a political uh, process that sort of produces certain um, actors as legal or illegal, um, formal or informal, and that these are sort of empowered categories that they're empowered by uh, by the state, and those end up being the kind of categories through which uh, NGOs are articulating their claims, or uh, you know, to sort of represent the community as as a claims making actor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. That was um, that was really comprehensive. Um, so, in the book, uh, 
you know, there is this preoccupation of uh, the state and non-state actors involved in resettling residents of transit colonies with the question of who is really a project-affected person, as we were just <laughs> discussing. Um, so answering this question, you show so persuasively that there are these means of uh, reckoning with questions around authenticity and duplicity of a multitude of documents. And I'm specifically thinking of a discussion towards the end of your book with uh, Vagmare, the leader of a community-based organization, RZPS, who issued allotment slips that were subsequently treated as duplicate by various state and non-state actors and authorities. And he says in the book, and I quote, um, whether documents are real or duplicate makes no difference. The important thing is whether the documents can get you a house. And some people who bought those duplicate papers, they got real houses. So in the end, their duplicates were real enough. Um, and so it was such an interesting and important moment in the book um, where the, the slippage between the real, the authentic, the duplicate, um, yeah, was, I think, provoked some really important questions. But could you um, unpack this for us a little and um, tell us how these reckonings with questions around authenticity shape mm. urban politics? Mm, yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. Um, yeah, so... You know, I think I'm going to answer that question by talking about the concluding chapter of the book. Mm. So in the conclusion of the book, um, I opened the conclusion with uh, talking about a conversation that I had back in 2009 with mm. a World Bank officer who had been advising the state's resettlement grievance committee. Um, and this grievance committee, as you can imagine, was mostly handling claims uh, made by people who were claiming not to have received compensation resettlement housing uh, for which they were saying they were eligible. So the officer, I remember this so vividly because there was almost like a desperation in his voice. And he asked me, he said, where are all these project affected people coming from? It's been 10 years. And, you know, the project, the demolitions happened around the turn of the millennium. And this was 2009. He said, we've already resettled all the eligible PAPs. They're called project-affected persons, PAPs. We've already resettled all the eligible PAPs. And then he says, okay, okay, so maybe there might be some leftover claims, but they're not, quote, genuine PAPs. Well, I asked him for a clarification. All right, what makes a PAP not genuine? Um, and he, he answers, or by way of an answer, he doesn't answer directly, he, but instead he tells me a story. Uh, about a man who had come into the office the week before claiming to have lived once upon a time in an era of the area of the city called Anderi. And this was an area where there had been no MUTP related displacement at all. Uh, but notwithstanding the fact that this person says that he had been living in Anderi, uh, this fellow told the grievance officer that he was living currently in an MUTP resettlement transit camp and that he was in possession of allotment papers that certified his eligibility as a project-affected person. So, you know, when, when this, uh, this officer, this World Bank officer told me the story, he sort of shook his head in bafflement and disbelief as if, you know, it was obvious to him that this person's origins in Anderi make it clear that he was not a he couldn't possibly be a genuine pap because there's no such thing as being a genuine pap who is from Anderi. But this is where um, the words of Ranish that you just quoted before that social worker become important. Um, you know, as he said, as you quoted, whether documents are real or duplicate makes no difference. The important thing is whether those documents get you a house. And some people who bought those duplicate documents uh, get real houses. So in the end, their duplicates were real enough. So what are we to make about this sort of real versus duplicate um, distinction? And this is a question, of course, that anthropology has long been concerned with, uh, this question of you know, so-called genuineness or authenticity. Um, and anthropologists have looked or you know, produced uh, beautiful research on the processes and practices of sorting so-called authentic or real things um, from their presumed opposites, fake things. Um, so uh, anthropologists have shown in their work how uh, just the, this kind of work of establishing something as real or as authentic 
um, is in fact something which is accomplished over time. It's not something that sort of is a referential act. It's not that something mm. is authentic or not authentic in relation to some sort of particular set of qualities, but that authentication, authentication is a practice of naming and performing and producing something as authentic uh, or as real. And similarly, scholars have shown how reading something as fake or as an imitation, or here in our case, as duplicate, um, that the sort of reading of something as a fake comes from perceiving some difference between two things uh, that might otherwise seem similar. So there's two things, one gets called real, one gets called fake, and there's something different between them that adjudicates whether the thing is real and whether the thing is fake. So what is that difference or uh, what um, anthropologist Michael Lempert calls the, the differential? He talks about, Lempert talks about how um, making sense of reals and fakes means that as anthropologists, we've got to pay attention to what he calls, and I love, I love that he calls it labor. He calls the labor of cleaving and closing differentials. And I like this cleaving and closing um, of differentials of sort of, you know, figuring out and, and sort of sorting reels from fakes as, as a kind of practice that happens in time. So with this kind of idea of attending to this labor of uh, cleaving and closing differentials, um, in the book's conclusion, what I do is I take the World Bank officer's bafflement at the Andheri man's claim to be an eligible project affected person. And I've never met this undirty man. I just like him in theory. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, just, I take this bafflement uh, as the sort of provocation of a thought experiment. So what I do is I draw on all the accounts that we have then waded through from prediction other presented over the course of the book, the doc, you know, the, the documents, the duplicate documents, the duplicate, duplicate documents, like all of these sort of different documents that, that, uh, and, and they're sort of all, authors and issuers. Um, And I walk the reader through a range of quite possible histories of the Andheri man's transit camp allotment papers. Now, the key in this thought experiment that in each of these possible histories, and I call them possible because we've seen uh, in in the ethnographic accounts in the previous chapters, uh, these all of these sort of histories, how they played out uh, in in prediction of her. Um, And in all of these possible histories, it's not the Anderi man's personal history as having been project affected that is the differential, right? So in all of these scenarios, I take it as a given that the Anderi man was project affected. And I sort of go into, you know, how I define that. Um, So it's not that he, it's not that his status or his history as project affected that differentiates um, this fellow's paperbacked claims from claims that have been recognized um, and deemed official, eligible, legible, as you put it, um, and uh, have therefore um, those legible claims have proven convertible into real estate. Um, but instead, what we see through this thought experiment um, at, reflecting on uh, the accounts in the book, we see all the ways that the Andheri man's personal history might notwithstanding the fact that he may have been project affected, how his history might be illegible to the particular forms in which the eligibility criteria is required to be demonstrated. So in each of the scenarios, the illegibility of the man, um, of the man's per, of the man's history uh, renders the papers unconvertible into real estate, even though he may well have actually been project affected. So um, there's like a myriad of different ways in which uh, that sort of illegibility, uh, or as Lempert calls it, the kind of differential between, you know, that which is adjudicated as as genuine, genuine PAP, um, and mm-hmm. that which uh, comes to be seen as, as not genuine, how that can play out. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I'll stop there. Yeah, I think all of these discussions around, um, you know, how the, the labor of performing and authenticating this genuine papness um, got me thinking about resilience in the book and how you see it. And I think that tends to be this narrative in popular discourses, I guess, as well as in some academic writing that either paints poor communities as hapless victims or glorifies their survival as an example of their hardy resilience. Um, And I found it interesting how you instead showed the myriad forms of vulnerability and strategy 
that pervade the everyday practice of living in these transit colonies. So I was curious to hear from you if there were some figures who for you became emblematic of ambivalence in this way, um, as in were there specific interlocutors who pushed you to think more about this victim slash hero dichotomy? Mm. That's just such a wonderful and important point that you raised, Neha, this characterization in so much popular and scholarly work uh, mm-hmm. of the, the poor, either um, in terms of a victimhood or as resilient or resistant. And I mean, of course, resilience and resistance aren't the same thing. Resilient discourse sort of celebrates survival rather than critiquing the conditions that produce the violence and dispossession that might be so heroically survived. But um, resilience does seem to share with ideas of resistance a kind of conceptual location that is external and in opposition to, to, you know, forces that are presumed to produce uh, the conditions that are then survived. Mm -hmm. It's these kinds of conceptual binaries, these binaries that we've been talking about, right, like formal and informal, state versus community, legal, illegal, state, uh, you know, eligible and ineligible. Um, these kinds of binaries are what collapses uh, under the weight of historical and ethnographic attention in, in prediction other. So, for instance, and thanks for inviting me to talk about um, about particular interlocutors. I'm thinking, you know, your question brings to mind um, a woman who plays a starring role in the book who I call Chachi, which just means auntie. And Chachi is someone who, she's a really fascinating person. She's someone who had made, along with a group of her neighbors in her previous neighborhood, had made a speculative investment in documents that were being provided by the leader of a local NGO, um, the one that you mentioned earlier, um, the RZPS, uh, yeah, RZPS. And the leader of that NGO is a man uh, whom I call Wagmarde. And his NGO wasn't the NGO that had been officially awarded the state contract for surveying the neighborhoods and for adjudicating eligibility of the so-called affected community. Um, And that officially appointed NGO is called SPARC. Um, Rather, uh, Wagmere was the leader of another NGO that had been operating in the same area. Uh, And so, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to read a passage from the book here about Chachi. So, Chachi tells me, um, okay, so I asked Chachi to tell me how she met Wagmerde. Wagmerde, again, is the leader of the NGO that was not uh, given the contract, the state contract, to do this knowledge production survey and mapping exercise. Um, I asked her how she met Wagmerde and of how she came to live here in Pratikshanagar. And she says, it was a few years ago. Wagmerde was holding a protest downtown to demand rooms for all of the people who had been left behind when the MUTP building allotments were being made and people were shifted out of the transit camps and into resettlement buildings. Wagmerde's protest went on for a few months. And so eventually we came to know about these transit camps. They were empty, those transit camps, see, because everybody had moved out and gone to the buildings. So I went to talk to him. Then I asked Chachi, So wait, you knew it was an MUTP transit camp, but was your plan to move into the transit camp and just stay forever? Or did you suspect that the camp would be knocked down sooner or later? And the camp was knocked down sooner. It was knocked down in 2007. So Chachi considers the question, uh, and it occurs to me while she's sort of mulling over my question about, you know, what was her plan and did she know? Um, it occurs to me that perhaps she hadn't had a plan in quite those terms. She responds to me slowly. She says, we knew it was a transit camp. And Wagmerde told us if we come to live in the transit camp, then later it might be possible to get rooms in a building. See, nothing was fixed. We gave a fortune to Wagmerde. Some people gave 20,000 rupees. Some people gave 70,000 rupees. I ask, but wait, did you know that the documents he gave you were duplicate? Again, I use the word duplicate. That was my word at the time. She shrugs a little dismissively. What do we know? But I push a little bit. But you must have known that they were a little different from the ones given to the MUTP people because she wasn't an MUTP affected person. After all, I point out, the name of Wagmerde's NGO is totally different. Wagmerde's allotment papers weren't even trying to look like the MUTP ones. 
Chachi nods energetically, indicating that now I had finally gotten the point. Yes! We knew it wasn't Spark giving the papers. Wagmerde wasn't giving duplicate Spark papers. Wagmerde had his own NGO. He was giving papers from his NGO. And what was the difference? She says this point, uh, this last point emphatically, a little bit indignantly. And see, Wagmerde was a fighter. We thought that maybe it would work. Maybe it would work. Moving here, taking his allotment papers. We thought maybe it was possible. So I want to give Chachi the, the last word here, but her words, mm-hmm. I feel, give a sense um, uh, not of victimhood or resilience or heroic resistance, as you point out, but rather they gesture toward the very lively and contentious uh, political and associational landscape within which um, the actually existing city is is lived. Yeah. Uh, I mean, this is all so interesting that I want to keep keep on talking about the book. And I think it's a it's a marker of great ethnography that even as you were reading out the field notes, I felt like I was in Pratiksha Nagar, even though I've never been there. But I think that that's the level of vivid detail and um, attention to to these um, yeah contentions, to these very local and particular contentions that that to me were the highlight of the book, and I really enjoyed reading it. But before we let you go, and I know we've taken up a lot of your time, um, I'm sure we would all love to know. Uh, what are you working on currently and what might we expect to see from you in the near future? Oh, thanks for inviting me to talk about uh, about that too. Um, mm-hmm. So I guess the kind of big uh, ticket item that I'm excited about at the moment is that next month, uh, a book that I've been working on for a number of years, uh, it's a collaborative ethnographic project called Bombay Brokers, is, um, is going to be published um, with Duke University Press. And this is a, a bit of a, a circus of a book. Um, it was kind of like a dream book that I cooked up um, over, uh, as 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 most dream books get cooked up over, you know, conversations over, uh, you know, dinner or, or drinks, and you know, the conversation often when you're talking to, um, at least in my experience, friends in Bombay or who work on Bombay. Uh, often turns to the kind of creativity and genius of our research interlocutors. So uh, we ended up sort of cooking up um, this scheme to invite or assemble as many anthropologists as we could to write character profiles of a particular kind of person that I talk about in the book. And and, I mean, I I gloss them as brokers, but we have a particular uh, theory of brokers and brokerage that that we unpack in that book. Um, And the introduction was just posted online. So feel free to go and read it. Um, But so what we've done is we've we've assembled these uh, around 3,000 word character profiles and um, and sort of tried to explore the question of, you know, what is the Bombay broker brokering? And you know, what is the fixer fixing and, and what kinds of uh, what might we learn about the, the kind of global contemporary if we think the city just for a moment from our peripheral vision. So these these people that we write about in the book, they're not um, the kind of main protagonists of our stories. Right. The idea was that, you know, we all have the thing that we study in Bombay. Somebody works on. Uh, water pipe. Somebody writes about, you know, Hindi filmmaking, and we've got the kind of main characters or protagonists of our story. We've got the engineer and the film director or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the idea is that sort of around these people hover these other people, and mm-hmm. sometimes you can't quite make out what they do for a living. But what you know is that without that person, whatever it is that you're writing your book about, that thing doesn't happen, right? Water doesn't come out of taps. Movies don't mm-hmm. get made. So then the question is like, what is this person actually do and everybody of course right away had a person in mind they wanted to write about (laughs) the idea was that if we actually focus on what is the content of the expertise that those people wield um what does that tell us about uh about the the global present um and then we kind of broke those down into into sort of six thematic categories of you know what the bombay broker brokers in terms of property relations and truth and uh Publics and things. Anyway, I'm I'm thrilled to pieces about that, which is about to come out, and and then I'm also working on um, another book project, uh, which I'm neck deep into, which is about the theatrical idiom of political life in contemporary Bombay. I will leave it at that. Ah, well, both of these sound very interesting. I'm uh, I'm so excited about Bombay Brokers. I already, I mean, I. I 
can we pre-order it? I'm not sure. I haven't kept track, but I will as soon as it's available for pre-order. It, I mean, the cover itself is stunning. Thank so, you. <laughs> you know, it's one of those books that I think you just want to like um, pick up from a bookshelf because it it, it looks great. And um, yeah, I read the introduction and it's absolutely fantastic. Um, and I can't wait to see what happens. And uh, I was also curious, I guess, to know how has the pandemic affected the, the next project? Have you... Um, you know, do you have any tips for us, I guess, to think about doing research in these uh, strange times? Yeah, you know, it's, um, it's a, uh, I feel like for everyone, no matter where we are and what we do, the pandemic has brought into view dynamics about our inquiries and our puzzles that were already there, uh, but, you know, maybe weren't part of our, I mean, they were like dynamics that just sort of weren't in view or weren't observable ethnographically. So I was actually in Bombay um, until two days before the lockdown uh, in India. And then I I, um, left just before the lockdown. Um, So my research got cut short, which seems like it would have been um, incredibly sort of you know, devastating to the project. Although I had been working on, on the research for this book I've been doing over the past eight years or so. Um, and I do plan to return to Bombay next winter to finish up uh, a final piece of the project. But throughout the winter, you know, what I found is, um, you know, being in conversation with research interlocutors in Bombay and um, being able to follow the media, I've been really interested. I've started a new project on trying to track uh, the sort of language of um, certain kinds of uh, claims making, political claims making. How do we think about the language of politics in in different um, different uh, you know in Marathi and Hindi and in, in Urdu in Bombay and, and um, sort of tracking uh, some of the the sort of texture or the you know the relationship between um, the the representations uh, and, and the kind of the, the idioms of communication that that are. Uh, on the page, in words that are on our screens, in videos, and that are, you know, as I've been exploring ethnographically, on the street in real time. So I think for me, as an ethnographer, um, the danger of actually being in, in Bombay is that I end up getting so sucked into the, like, the live on the street action that sometimes mm-hmm. I don't carve out enough space to attend to some of the other ways in which political communication happens. So it's been maybe a disciplining exercise for me. (laughs) 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 Oh yeah. And then I'm going to read all that stuff too. And I'm going to watch these videos. Right. So (laughs) yeah, it's an invitation to revisit that. And I knew it was important to understand the relationship between the screen and the street, but um, it was really disciplined me in that way. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, li- I like to think about it uh, at times as, as the affordances, right, of, of different creative ways of thinking about research itself and stuff that maybe we haven't had the time to to look at or, the yeah, to consider. Um, but thank you so much, Niza, for this really lively and stimulating conversation. I absolutely, again, enjoyed your book so much and congratulations on, on um, getting it out there in the world. And um, yeah, I wish you all the luck with the future projects. I'm sure we'll stay in touch. Thank you so much for inviting me, for reading and uh, for your fantastic questions. These are such provocative um, and challenging questions to answer. And I really appreciated them. Thank you. <laughs>